Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to Lost in Science for another week. Thanks for being with us. This is half an hour of science on your radio. My name is Claire. And um, if you didn't know, just past has been International Immunology Day. Yes, I hope, wow. I hope we all celebrated appropriately. It was on um, uh, Monday, April 29th. Yeah, I don't think I got any diseases on that day. Well done, Chris. Well done. Anyway, doctors, researchers, um, hoping to use International Immunology Day as a way to highlight increased cases of measles. So I'm going to talk a little bit about a little bit about measles, a little bit about immunology. Chris, how about you? Thank you, Claire. I am looking at a a new discovery in our human. Ancestors or human relatives, you know, Homo sapiens, like human yeah. beings. Yeah. We are the only Homo species on the planet at the moment in our genus, the only hominins. But it they, wasn't always like that, though. It wasn't was always it? like that. It used to be others, and um, there's been another one recently discovered in the Philippines, Homo luzonensis. So I'm going to look a bit at Homo luzonensis, but also how it fits into the rest of hominin evolution. That is big news. It is big news. It's a big story. Um, These probably aren't our ancestors. I should say that right from the outset. They're probably not our ancestors. They're probably just like relatives. But aren't isn't everybody our relative, relative in a way? In a way, yeah. Speaking of hominin relatives... Stu also has a story for yes, us. Yes, yes. <laughs> Stu's story today, he's going to be taking us back into his element because, you know, it is 2019 International Year of the Periodic Table. Counting down the most <laughs> or least popular elements, I don't know. And Stu's story is all about one of the rarest elements on Earth. Is that right? That is right. It is a rare element that is that is extremely rare on Earth, but is ironically named after the Earth. So, you know, <laughs> we'll just leave what it can there. we do? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We won't take the element of surprise from Stu. <laughs> I think that's a good time to say yeah. on with the show. So Monday, April 29th was International Immunology Day. Did you know? I've heard this. I heard this um, from you just recently in the introduction to this show. (laughs) Immunologists, doctors, health advocates are using this day to raise awareness around vaccination. Well, I hope their message goes viral, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew you needed to raise awareness around vaccination in these days? But... You do. Well, you know, sticking needles in the people is never popular, so. Yeah, well, it should be because mm. um, the opposite is probably worse. Yeah. But in particular, vaccination against uh, the disease measles. So the focus on measles in particular is because there has been a fourfold increase in global outbreaks of measles um, recorded this year. Wow. Compared to last year. That is a big increase. Yeah. So in Australia, we've had 103 cases of measles diagnosed in the first three months of 2019. 
when you get a bit of perspective around this, that is the same number of diagnosed cases we had in the whole of last year. Wow. Yeah. And it is, it is like um, people, a lot of people I think is. I think it's a simple childhood disease, but it's quite serious. I know because a lot of people had it when they were kids. Yeah. I'm pretty certain I had measles when I was a kid. There's a photo of me sitting up in bed. You can't see the spots, but I was told I had measles. Right. Yeah. And I mean, look, it. yeah, you might know a little bit about measles. Maybe we even had it. Um, it is a virus. It can cause symptoms for up to 10 days. Um, in some people, it does cause hospitalization and se- serious and life-threatening complications, including pneumonia, inflammation, encephalitis of the brain. And also a chronic life-threatening condition called subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, which is fatal. Yeah, so it can be pretty bad. Um, I mean, fatal is is pretty bad. It's up there. Yeah, yeah. It kills around 100,000 people each year. Wow. Um, and in, in, across the world? Across the world. Yeah, across the world, not okay. in Australia. That no. would be too many people. Um, mostly children. But it can be prevented with two doses of a measles vaccine, normally given at 12 months and 18 months. Right. Yes. So the measles alarm is being raised across the world. The World Health Organization, also known as the WHO, the WHO, um, have reported slipping global vaccination rates. So this year, 170 countries reported 112,000 measles cases to the WHO. Um, but this time last year, we had 163 countries reporting 28,000 cases. So, yes, that, there's that fourfold increase for you. Um, so, Australia has had very high vaccination rates, uh, keeping the virus at bay. And in 2014, the WHO, the WHO, they declared measles had actually been eradicated from Australia. But according to doctors, these measles outbreaks are actually happening because young adults who have only had maybe one or none of the uh, measles vaccines or the doses of the measles vaccines, um, they're now getting to an age where they are traveling overseas, where they can catch the infection Uh. overseas, and then they're bringing it back into Australia. Um, Now, the vibe you're probably getting is that... um, if there are all these outbreaks, then maybe it is extremely contagious and you would be correct. So to give you an idea of how contagious it is, I'll slip into um, a touch of epidemiology, if you will indulge me, Chris. Excellent. Yep. I so- prefer epidemiology to, to demonology, which <laughs> I, I almost got confused with the other day. <laughs> um, no demonology here. Okay. Just epidemiology, right. the study of diseases. Yeah. Right. Um, so in epidemiology, the basic reproduction number or the R naught number gives you an assessment of the contagiousness of a disease. So it refers to how many people typically catch the disease from an initial case. So, for example, the regular flu, it has an R naught or an R zero or a reproduction number of two to three. So this means that for every one person that has the flu, uh, they will give two to three other people the flu. Gotcha. Yeah. Smallpox has an R naught value of five to seven. So every person with smallpox gives five to seven people smallpox. Um, It's quite a lot more contagious than the flu, as you can see. Chickenpox is around eight. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But measles, can you guess what the R naught of measles is. Um, 
I don't know. I, 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 I feel like you're going up in the scale, so I'm going to go higher. Great. And I'm going to say 12. It's 15. 15. Yeah, on average around 15. So anywhere between, yeah, 12 and I think 18. Yeah. So it's extremely contagious. This is why epidemics of measles can spread so quickly. And um, it also means because they are so contagious, we need a very high rate of vaccination in the community um, to get the proper herd immunity within the community. Community herd immunity. That's a bit of a mouthful. That sounds, that sounds legit. Yeah. 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 Um, to stop an outbreak. Okay. So for measles, we need... So you were saying we need some unity around this immune, herd <laughs> we immunity. We also need unity. Always need unity. For, for the sure. community to have herd immunity. <laughs> yeah, we do. Right. We yeah. actually We do. can't just do this with impunity. <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, Chris yeah. Lassick, he's here all week. Should I go on? Mm, no. Okay. Um, so for measles, we need a 95% vaccination rate within the community. So we need 95% of the community to have... Herd immunity. Yes. <laughs> immunity or immunity. Yes. <laughs> and in many parts of Australia, this 95% exists. But we also know that, unfortunately, there are parts of Australia that are sitting at around 86%. Mm. Yes. So this leaves people within the community who, for potentially health reasons, maybe they're immunocompromised, maybe they're pregnant or they're tiny little babies and they can't yet get um, the vaccination, it leaves them um, open to potentially contracting measles. So the next question is why the measles vaccination rates are so low in some places. Well, doctors say the impact of uh, still the anti-vaccination stigma, which is fueled by groups that um, often on the internet that distort possible harms um, and all this results in parents' confidence in the safety of vaccination being undermined. Um, So medical professionals see the most important way to increase vaccination rates is to, as a profession, develop trust and help change the opinions of parents who, for whatever reason, are hesitant to vaccinate their children. Um, So I guess if you have any questions about measles or vaccines this International Immunology Day, uh, the best thing to do is talk to your doctor. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, in recent years, scientists have been finding all sorts of extinct relatives to modern humans. The picture is getting more complicated, but you know we're getting some idea of the um, the diversity in our in our genus that that used to exist. Yeah, well, that, yeah, it seems there's not a, you know a year goes by without more discoveries, and in in different places it was you know sort of limited to. Africa a long time ago, mm. and then it sort of spread out to Europe and Asia and all sorts of different places, finding early hominins. I think, well, we'll go through that. So I thought I would give a bit of a rundown on some of the, the main ones, what we know about human evolution. But yeah. as you'll see, they are actually all over the place. Yeah. Um, and not just uh, recently. You know, they have been for a while. But um, yeah, but this is all sparked off by the latest discovery. They said there's a new one every day. The latest discovery is on the island of Luzon in the Philippines, a species that they are calling Homo luzonensis. Uh, and it's a bit of a strange one. Um, but look, yeah, as I said, we'll go through a bit of um, a look at 
what we know about human evolution or hominin evolution, as as you quite rightly call it. And also, well, I'm, I'm going to go through it very kind of briefly. There's a lot of confusing names and dates and this kind of stuff, so I'm just going to hit some of the big ones. If your favourite species is not mentioned, don't worry. I, I do know about it. It's just that, come on, people's be, be kind to people's brains here. <laughs> Look, if you, if you if you don't hear your favourite species mentioned, please drop us a line and, oh, we'd and let us that. know. We'd love that. Anyway, okay, as you said, though, Stuart, we start in Africa where there were lots of ape-like relatives. Um, I say relatives because evolution, it doesn't work like a straight line, does it? It just sort of... Well, no, and, and not everything is is our direct ancestor yeah. either. Yeah. yeah, pretty much work. what best you can do is say, okay, lived at this time when we would have had ancestors. You can work out how closely related it is to us, but essentially most of the things we find are going to be kind of a little offshoot yeah. rather than directly on our lineage. Yeah, but anyway, so the most famous of the relatives is uh, Australopithecus afarensis, um, particularly a partial skeleton of a female that was found named Lucy. Uh, Lucy, who lived 3.2 million years ago. Um, she was small. She was only 1.1 metres tall, looked similar to a chimpanzee, but walked upright on two legs. Uh, but yeah, very ape-like, and that's why she's in a separate genus, um, where Australopithecus means southern ape. Right. Okay. So our genus, which is Homo, first appeared around 2 million years ago. Now, the most successful uh, species in this genus was Homo erectus, which lasted from about... 1.8 million years ago till about, well, 140,000 years ago seems to be one of the more accepted figures, but there is some evidence that has a later 70,000 years ago. Um, Homo erectus was also known as Java Man because it was first found in Indonesia, but has since been identified in Africa and Europe as well as in Asia. So right. spread across the world, basically, Homo erectus did. But that's not the same species as humans now. So this is no, just something... Yeah, this was an early one. Like I said, it started around uh, 1.8 million years ago. Okay. Now, now, but Homo erectus was a very long-lasting and very widespread um, species. So they're often, they often are considered ancestors to later species, including ourselves. You know, they were like the dominant Homo species in the world. So it kind of makes sense that their descendants would still live on. But it's hard to tell exactly whether they're direct descendants or not. Now, Homo sapiens, which is, of course, our species, are believed to have emerged in Africa about 350,000 years ago and left Africa sometime in the last 100,000 years. 70,000 years ago is kind of the date that they often give as the time frame for out of Africa. Yep. But um, you know, there's, there's always new discoveries that kind of throw that into question, including you know across Asia and also in Australia as yeah. well. Um, but we weren't alone when we left Africa. There were already the Neanderthals, um, usually designated Homo neanderthalensis, and they were found mostly in Europe, um, last between 400,000 to about 40,000 years ago. Um, then there were the Denisovans. They are named after a cave in Siberia, which is the only place where their remains have been found. Uh, now, there is very little in terms of bones, but DNA has been extracted from those bones, which is kind of how we know a bit about them and how we know there are separate species to Neanderthals and ourselves. Mm. Um, and there has been DNA from Neanderthals and Denisovans found in modern humans, well, modern non-African humans, um, indicating that there was interbreeding when we left Africa. In fact, last year there was a paper published that showed evidence of some of this interbreeding. Um, there was another uh, from the Denisovan cave in Siberia. This was an individual they called Denny. This was a, a girl. Um, they did a genetic analysis on her, and they found that she was half Neanderthal and half Denisovan, and that was about 90,000 years ago. So she was kind of half from each species, indicating there's a pretty direct evidence of, of interbreeding. Yeah, it's interesting that there's gene flow between what, you know, what, 
are being considered separate species because yeah. that's one of the defining features of what is a species is that you can interbreed. So there maybe the the boundaries of the hominin species are not as rigid as we would maybe like to think. Well, yeah, I mean that's certainly why sometimes they do consider these are the same species. Sometimes mm. people talk about Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. Yeah. But, you know, you also brought up Star Trek earlier, and we shouldn't ignore that Vulcans and humans can, can interbreed. Oh, yeah, well, look, they so. explained that in one episode, I remember vaguely. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, even then there were other species as well. Now, a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, there was a discovery of Homo naledi deep in a cave in South Africa. Yeah. Um, they've been dated about 250,000 years ago, uh, but they share traits uh, with Homo erectus, but also a bit similar to Australopithecus as well. So somewhere in between. Yeah, somewhere in between. Or well, they could have been like another offshoot species. Yeah. Um, then, of course, there's the hobbit, Homo floresiensis, found on the island of Flores in Indonesia. Now, there's been some debate over how old the hobbits are, but now thought to be somewhere between 100,000 and 60,000 years old. Even so, there's a theory that um, that as a species, they actually predate Homo erectus and so may have left Africa separately um, rather than evolving locally. So one idea was they evolved from Homo erectus locally in Indonesia, but yeah. now some people suggested that they actually they're separate enough that they can't be descended from Homo erectus. They evolved earlier and then left Africa on their own. Mm. Um, and there's also no indication that people who live there in Flores today have any DNA from them, so that you know, indicating that they were just kind of their own little unique corner of the world. Uh, and then finally, there's a new discovery from the Philippines called Homo luzonensis. Now, there's not much there to go by. There's been a few teeth, which um, the teeth are very small, so it suggests that the individuals were tiny, but it's really impossible to say exactly how tall they were. Um, there's also a toe bone. The toe bone is curved, which is a trait that is more similar to Australopithecus and is more suitable for climbing trees. Yeah. So again, suggests that they're not a direct kind of, um, well, certainly not an ancestor of ours. They're closer to the, um, the more ape-like trait, uh, um, traits. Um, so yeah, whether they evolved locally from Homo erectus or were a separate species entirely is yeah is another question. These fossils that they were found in a cave called Kaleo on on the Luzon, they've been dated about fifty thousand years ago. Again, there's some debate about the actual dating, but they quite lasted quite late for some sort of I guess a small sort of unique hominin species that. Yeah, so obviously there was lots of different kinds of human-like creatures running around the place when Homo sapiens was spreading out as well. Yeah, not that long ago, really. And yeah, I don't know, for myself, it's hard to it's hard to know whether to be glad that there were so many, there was so much diversity, or just to be sad that we're kind of the only ones who, who are remaining. Well, it would be an interesting uh, cultural exchange, wouldn't it, to have different almost human species running around well a lot of these um a lot of these species did have their own stone tools and their mm. own uh, evidence of rituals and artwork as well so yeah it would be interesting cultural exchange clearly some did happen with the neanderthals and yeah. the denisovans back in the day not just cultural but um genetic yeah uh <laughs> it would be uh, a different world indeed if, yeah. if they were still around Now, we all know on Lost in Science that it's the International Year of the Periodic Table, and I'm trying to look at some related stories as we progress through the year, and I think I'm doing all right. You're doing great, Stu. Keep up the good work. Thanks. So I've done a couple of related stories, but one thing that often gets people curious are extremes of things, so the biggest and the smallest and the most Mm. abundant and Mm. the most rare. Mm. So I wondered this week, what is the most rare element? Um, 
Now, that's a tricky question because we can only really know for sure what, uh, based on what we've what measured. What we know. Yeah. And yeah. most of that is pretty much on Earth. I mean, we can yeah. estimate the, the, the com- you know, the contents of distant stars and things like that. Obviously, that- are we counting the elements too that, that we... I can only make in a laboratory and don't last very long because they're extremely rare. Well, that's exactly right. So, um, (laughs) yes, you, yes, you. I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that. So, it's it's tricky to know what is the most uh, rare element on Earth. But first of all, let's look at uh, what is the most abundant element on Earth. This could take a while. Now that's tricky as well. Um, But there are a number of ways to look at abundance in chemicals in elements. So first of all, you could look at the comparative number of atoms of one thing mm-hmm. compared to the number of different atoms of, you know, what other things there are. Sure. That sounds perfectly reasonable. That sounds perfectly As reasonable. As in the number of hydrogen atoms that there would be compared to oxygen or something. Exactly. So for example, in water, oxygen makes up a third of the water molecule, H2O, uh, because there is one oxygen to every two of hydrogen. So we'd say in water, that a third of the water is oxygen. But obviously, if you looked at the mass of oxygen, oxygen makes up about 90% of the water. So depends what you're actually looking at and how you're measuring it as to which is the most abundant. So there are two answers. That's fine. What are they? Well, look, there's not really two answers because it doesn't really matter what you add up. If you're looking at the universe in the number of atoms... The most abundant element in the universe is hydrogen. Hydrogen. Yes. Yeah. It's hydrogen because there's just so much of it. Yeah, yeah. It basically bursts into... That's what into, makes something abundant. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it burst into existence at the moment of the Big Bang. Yeah. And that was pretty much all there was. There was a little tiny little bit of lithium and there was a fair bit more of uh, helium mm-hmm. at the same time. But pretty much... Um, uh, on Earth, it's pretty much hydrogen as well. So hydrogen accounts for every uh, nine out of every ten atoms in the universe. And most of the rest of the, the one in ten are made up of helium. And there's only 2% of other things. So if you've got all the atoms and counted them up, only 2% are things that aren't <laughs> hydrogen oh or helium. God. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <gasps> yeah. So that is pretty much true on Earth, but most of the atoms are... Hydrogen, but a lot of the hydrogen's bound up with other things. So obviously there's lots of hydrogen bound up in water and there's all sorts of organic molecules and various other hydrates that have hydrogen attached to them. So there's a lot of hydrogen. But now looking at the element with the least number of atoms on Earth, we're faced with another issue. And as you mentioned before, Chris, the atoms at the heavier end of the periodic table are very massive and very unstable. So they basically fall apart while you're looking at them in some cases. Um, And physicists have also made some of their own elements. Well, they didn't make them. They're not their own elements. They they forced them into being, though, by um, basically getting other elements and smashing them together Mm. until... Some of them stuck together, and you're not allowed to name it after yourself. I don't think. No, you have. I think. I think it's just manners, really. I don't think there's any hard and fast rules about who you name it after. Um, There was there was an element called borium, which was just the guy who discovered it. Um, said it was just really boring because it was exactly the element. No, that's why borium's called borium. No, it's named after Niels Bohr, but he found it really boring because it fit exactly in the periodic table where he was 
you know, where they were looking for it. And he went, oh, well, that's boring. Wow, really? When you get a jigsaw piece puzzle just right, you know, that feeling of taking it and putting it in exactly where it is. I wouldn't say that's a boring yeah, feeling. you don't complain when there's like one bit of sky left and it turns to be blue. Yes. You know, well, hey, look. You know, maybe maybe you shouldn't have been a physicist. Is he should have looked outside of chemistry for yeah. his calling. So those those elements that physicists have sort of manufactured really only exist long enough that they can sort of measure that they existed, and then they, a lot of them sort of dissipate into back into smaller uh, uh, elements again. So among atoms that are stable under normal Earth conditions and not um, manufactured in particle smashes. The most rare is one which we'd call a statine. Now, a statine is a radioactive element, but it is lasts longer than milliseconds, but it's got a half-life of about 8.1 hours. So it basically only exists as other bigger elements are decaying and breaking down. Right, okay. So at any given time, there's probably only about 30 grams on Earth. Right. Because it keeps breaking down. So it breaks down from larger atoms turns into a statine, breaks down again, and then it's no longer a statine. So there's really only a little bit at any given time that you sort of just chase passing it through. Yeah, just passing by. <laughs> so when it comes to stable elements that are rare for reasons other than atomic instability, it's probably a metallic substance called tellurium, which has the atomic number of 52, and it's present in the crust of the Earth at about one microgram per kilogram which is around about the same level as plutonium is present, but oh. slightly less. Okay. So, wow. so But they, you say in the crust of the Earth, so there could be more beneath the surface. Well, they think that actually it's not as rare in the universe as it is on Earth. They think there's a lot more of it out in the universe. But what they think happened was that as the Earth was forming and accreting into a solid lump, there was all sorts of other chemical reactions going on in space without oxygen and and carbon being present and all of those things and hydrogen. And a lot of the uh, tellurium that would have been in the Earth got sort of blown off into space. Um, but in the universe, it's probably in a lot higher levels than what we've got it on Earth. But that is uh, the rarest uh, atom, the rarest element that we have in the Earth's crust is tellurium. So there you go. And do we need it for anything? Do we yeah, use they, it for anything? Yeah, they actually do use it. They don't have to mine it because they basically get it from um, the slag from smelting other metals. Oh. Right. And they process that and get the tellurium out. Slag and then, wow. metal. And then the tellurium yeah. helps with um, – they make alloys out of it to help process other metals more easily. So it does have its uses, um, but obviously there's probably cheaper things around to, to use for that same purpose. That's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for staying with us. 
Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Um, please get in touch with us. We are at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are Lost in Science 1. Find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or... Maybe you can just tune in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.